price paid of the signers of the, of the Declaration of Independence. We, we know there's prices still paid today. I want you to consider not just the freedom of our country, but the freedom to follow God, the freedom of worship. And that price is still being paid today. We're going to talk about that this morning. Interesting enough, it's in 2 Timothy chapter 2, as we are beginning this study or going through this chapter, the emphasis is on suffering. And suffering and freedom will go hand in hand. And so though we're talking about freedom, it's really about suffering. What are the anchors in the midst of suffering? Suffering not just for any sake, but suffering for the gospel's sake. We've seen, as we've studied in 2 Timothy, that that is, has been a theme for the whole book. A plea from Paul to Timothy, join with me. Don't be ashamed. Understand the spirit of God that's been given to you. Not one of fear, but one of love, power, sound mind to endure. In fact, in Mother's Day, we looked at how Paul made an appeal to the mothers and to the grandmothers. And as he did so, they were always linked together, suffering. When you think about your mother, think about your grandmother, let that be an encouragement for what you must endure. Do not be ashamed. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. We learned how Paul was telling Timothy, you must teach other men to be willing to teach others also, and that that's going to entail even more suffering as you do that. And, and we looked last week at the metaphors, three metaphors that he's given to those who will pursue this gospel ministry, that, that you are a hardworking farmer, that you are an athlete, that you are a good soldier, all of which involves some degree of suffering, single-minded purpose, discipline hard work and then we come to verse 8 I think it's it's fitting for us to consider this passage as we look at this as a nation many of us are aware of our nation's decisions in the Supreme Court from this past week that there are some uh, monumental decisions being made in regards to marriage uh, in in the federal arena and so I think it's good for us to to understand that for us to hold true to what the Bible says of the gospel, there's going to be a greater price paid for us to do that. And it's coming faster than I've originally anticipated even a year ago of the prices that will be paid for us just to hold true to what the Bible says. As you look throughout time, you'll find that Christians rarely were ever persecuted because of just the gospel's sake. It was always secondary issues. John the Baptist was put in prison because of his views on marriage. And he was outspoken and ultimately beheaded. It wasn't because he was just proclaiming the kingdom of God. It was because the kingdom of God implied certain things, certain truths. And he called them out in defining what marriage is and isn't. And that was ultimately the reason why he was beheaded. Throughout uh, history and around the world, you'll find that uh, folks, Christians, are put into prison because they are subversive to the government, because they are bad citizens to the government, even though that's not really the case. But that is the accusations made. We live in in a time where Americans are growing in favor of same-sex marriage, and so it is quickly becoming the public opinion. But we believe in a Bible that says that marriage is one man and one woman. That's defined. It has certain definitions of what sin is, is in rebellion. The fact is, American society doesn't care about that. It's just the reality. In fact, uh, an article this past week talking about the political nature of decisions of, of the last uh, few days. And House Speaker John Boehner and Majority Leader Eric Cantor was trying to balance what the Republicans are going to do on this divisive issues of immigration, immigration and marriage. And so Boehner says, a robust national debate over marriage will continue in the public square. And it's my hope that states will define marriage as the union between one man and one woman. One of the outspoken conservative comments came from uh, Michelle Bachman, 
You see, he says, marriage was created by the hand of God. No man, not even the Supreme Court, can undo what a holy God has instituted. House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi retorted, who cares? And I think that's the thing. She's expressing not just her view, but a growing view of America. Okay, you believe one man, one woman is marriage. You believe that that's not defined by, by the government, defined by God. Big deal. So what? This is how we're going to find it in America. And that's the society that we are in now, presently, and growing. So, I came across a great article written by Treadmill Wax. I'm just going to read, summarize some points. You can read some of these things at the website drnow.org. It's a biblical recorder. Uh, some interesting uh, articles about this. But this one I found uh, especially helpful. He brings out the good news and the bad news. Just bear with me a little bit on this. We're going to get to the text, I assure you. But the good news and the bad news. First of all, we're looking at the loss of the culture of marriage in our society. The loss of the culture of marriage. So, the bad news. When you look at other countries that are legalizing same-sex marriage from decades ago, you're going to see a dramatic reduction of the number of people getting married. This is based on what other countries have done and the stats where they're at now. So expect to see less marriages. So we're going to start resembling them. This is bad because marriage is a grace of God. We're going to see reduction of this common grace. It's going to be disregarded. So what's the good news in that? Well, the good news is that we're going to have a greater platform (laughs) Because we're going to be very different to show biblical marriage. By the very fact that you see a man in their 20s, a man and a woman in their 20s married with a stroller in hand, they're going to be strange. They're going to be odd, unusual. When you see um, one man in his 20s and and another woman in his 20s with with a stroller in tow, that's just going to be unique. What you have known as common will not be, and it's growing already that way. And so the good news is that we'll be able to stand out. We'll be able to show the difference of a covenant and a feeling. That a a relationship is based on the covenant and not a feeling. It's based out of faith. We've got a, a greater way to shine the light in that. And so there's bad news. The grace of marriage is going to reduce. The good news, we've got a larger way to show the difference between covenant and feeling. Something else, there's going to be threats to religious liberty. It's just going to happen. As the, the norm of marriage shifts, individual Christians will find themselves in situations where they'll face penalties for refusing to violate their conscience. We're already seeing this take place in certain parts uh, on Christian caterers who are conflicted about their role in taking part in same-sex weddings. So threats to religious liberty are not good news for the church because we tend to take time in making space, so to speak, for our living out religious convictions. We can take resources to do that. Here's the good news. It's going to bring in a much-needed mindset change for the church. What I'm, I'm talking about. Well, it's going to help us not to see ourselves as the moral majority, but instead as the missional minority. To shift from being the moral majority to the missional minority. Not to assume certain rights, but to serve out of love and sacrifice. Right now we see people as enemies. The church does. And I'm going to talk about our church specifically. But based on articles, editorials, and blogs, we see certain people as enemies. And that is hindering the gospel work among the so-called enemies. When you're in the minority, we no longer are able to do that. We just have to love them, serve them, pray for them. And then we're going to see the cost of conviction. We're going to see that, a greater cost of conviction. The bad news is, well, if we're going to hold convictions about this and related to sexuality, morality, and marriage, we're going to pay a price. We're going to pay a price in respectability. We're going to pay a, a price in clout. We're going to be, oh, you're one of them Southern Baptists. 
uh, we already feel that a little bit, and you just automatically are, are dropped several notches in your influence because of that. You're one of those people who believe that marriage is just one man, one woman. We're going we're gonna to see that. Well, here's the good news in that. Membership is going to cost something. To follow Christ is going to cost something. And that has always been good for the Christian faith in history. To be a Christian and it costs something has always been healthy for the believer. So we're going to pay a social cost. It's going to weed out those who are just doing this because it's acceptable versus those who have a heart change in Christ when we see that price. And so as we look into this, all I'm presenting to you is that to be a believer, as the days go by, is going to cost more in America. And it will entail some degree of suffering. And that price will pay, or will go higher as the days go on. Just know that these children we saw, these little cute children that we laugh at when they're trying to sing, If they have one spouse and they get married in their 20s, they will be ridiculed, will be made fun of, will be seen as obsolete. And if they hold true to say that my sons believe that marriage is just one man and woman, woman, they will be called bigots, narrow-minded, and will be treated as people who are racist are today. Do you see that about our children singing up here? That's probably the society that they're going in. The price I've paid has not been much. The price of our children, your grandchildren, a lot higher. A lot higher. <laughs> Do you see why it's important for them to sing about the love of God? Oh, happy day. A joy that's based in walking with Christ, not whether or not they get respect. So with that thought of mind, I think Paul, Paul is feeling what you're feeling perhaps right now. And he's thinking about that of Timothy. Timothy, join with me in the suffering. And so with this thought of mind, I want you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to read verses 8 through 13 and focus on that. But remember all these metaphors from the previous verse. Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Share in suffering, verse 3. Three metaphors. So as we're sharing in suffering, there's some things we need to remember. In honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read. Share in suffering. As a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with them, we will also live with them. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You may be seated. So I want to give you four anchors, four things to hold on to in suffering, or truths. And I think Paul is bringing these truths to Timothy, remember Verse 8, he's, if you're going to share in suffering, remember this. Think about this. First of all, we worship an executed and resurrected king. We worship an executed and resurrected king. You see that in verse 8. He says, I want you to remember something. Remember Jesus Christ. Remember, notice the, the tense here, present tense, risen from the dead. He's not just been raised, he 
the one we worship has that mark about him. He's been risen from the dead. As you are suffering, as people are going to go against you, as you face the penalty of suffering or serving Jesus Christ in this political climate against you, remember, the one you worship also did the same. He did it to the point of execution on the cross, and it did not stop him. He is resurrected. You worship one who has been ostracized but yet glorified. You worship the one who has been crucified yet resurrected. You worship the one that seemed to be defeated but now is victorious forever. So when you go through moments and it looks like defeat is in front of you, it looks like persecution is there, it looks like there's consequences, you worship someone who's gone through that and reigns still. Do you understand that? That becomes more beautiful as you pay a price. Now, here's something you need to know. When you are living life, you're going to suffer anyway. No one is exempt from that. It's called living life and dying. We're all going to suffer. So if you're going to suffer, why not just give your life to Christ and serve Him? I, I, I think about Philippians 1 where Paul is, is talking about and trying to encourage the letters of the people in, in Philippi. He says, you know what? Don't be ashamed of me and I'm in prison. It's, it's okay for me to be in prison. This is going to turn out for the advancement of the gospel. And then in, in chapter 1, he has that beautiful passage, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. Listen, if you're going to live life and you can't get past dying, then why don't you let your life live for Christ? So that the death becomes a gain. Because if you don't do that, you're going to suffer anyway, and then you're going to lose it all. Does that make sense? If you're going to have to live life where you're dying, then you might as well serve the Lord. And so, as we look at the prospects in front of us of, okay, if we live this life, it's going to be comfortable. We're not going to be ostracized. We're going to have respect. But you're still going to die. It's still going to be painful. It's still going to be suffering because you're living life. Well, if that's the case, it doesn't keep you from that. You might as well live for something that's worthwhile. And so he says, we worship an executed and resurrected king. So he says, look, consider this. He brings out two facts. One, He's risen from the dead, and then he's the offspring of David. The idea of the phrase offspring of David, it's, it's a messianic term. He's saying, remember this. This is not just some prophet. This, was the, this is the Messiah, the, the pro 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 prophesied branch of David, the one that the Old Testament scriptures refer to. That's him. He's Messiah. He's king, and he's resurrected. It's, it's almost like a, a war cry. It's, it's kind of like the remember the Alamo of wars times past. When we go through battle, it's not just remember the Alamo. It's not just remember Pearl Harbor. It's not just remember 9-11. It's remember Jesus Christ, the resurrected Messiah, the risen one. He's the captain of our salvation, and our purpose is to bring honor and glory to him. What encouragement is to the suffering Christian soldier to remember that he serves one who's defeated the persecution. Now, as we read this, we're going to look at some, an, an, an aspect. As God has always worked, it seems, as we read in the Old Testament, it's always done what looks like an apparent defeat. You can say that about Jesus himself. God's people will endure setbacks, and it seems from the watching world that we've lost our voice, that we've, we've, you know, if we lose our political voice, but gain obedience to Jesus Christ, we've not lost anything. But if we gain a political voice, but we're no longer obedient to Jesus Christ, what have we gained? Political force, Really? 
what appears to be setbacks leads to victory. Let me remind you, Mark 8, 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever lives, loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Anchor number one. In times of suffering, when people are against you, remember that we are worshiping a executed but resurrected king. We're not going down any road that Jesus has not also gone down. The second anchor is where we get to verse 9. He talks about, he's preached in my gospel, this gospel for, for which I am suffering. This, this gospel I'm preaching, I, I, I hurt. I'm hurting because of what I'm talking about. You can't get past that, can you, when he says, for which I'm suffering? There is pain involved. I am pained because of the gospel. I could, the easy way out is for me just to stop studying and teaching and preaching the gospel. That's the easy way out. But God has called me to this task. And there is no easy way out. I, and because of the gospel, I'm going to keep on and it's causing suffering. And then he says, I'm bound with chains. He's restricted. I mean, you can't get much more restricted than that. You're bound with chains. We talk about the limitations and, and things that may happen. Uh, restrictions of our freedom. Your freedom is not restricted by human government. Consequences will come. But your freedom is not restricted. You can be in Saudi Arabia. No one's going to restrict your freedom. The consequences are different. But no one says to a Christian, you have to keep your mouth shut. You cannot proclaim the gospel. No one can say that to a Christian with authority. What do I mean? Well, it's like Peter said to the religious leaders of the day who tried to do that very same thing. He said, you have to decide for yourself whether it's better to serve God or man. Every human has the opportunity to serve God, uh, to obey. Every believer has that opportunity to believe God and obey. Your freedom's still intact. The consequences are different. You understand that? We have to weigh what's more. The consequences are our Lord. And so he says, I, Paul says, I, I've kept on doing this and now I'm restricted. I, my, my, uh, my hands are chained. My arms are chained. I don't know if he's chained to a guard, chained to a wall, or a little bit of both. But for whatever reasons, he's restricted. I mean, he's not just in prison. He's restricted. Notice for which I'm suffering bound with chains as a criminal. There's shame involved. As I shared with you before, those who suffer in, in today's world and throughout history, they don't just suffer because they're a Christian. Oh, you're a Christian, so we're going to arrest you. No, they'll say things like, you are subverting the government. You are, you are corrupting the minds of our children. You are uh, abusing our children. And they will say things like that. And they will have accusations like that. So, you know, it's not like we have a banner that we have uh, put on us like, oh, here are all the believers in Jesus Christ. Because then we're like, okay, I'll be there. But no, it's, it's things like, oh, no, here are all the narrow-minded bigots. These are the, all the hateful people here. That's where they are. These are the ones who are subverting their children, who are hurting their children. These are the ones who are subverting government. These are the labels that are being used do you get that? I'm not speaking hypothetical. These are the labels being used today somewhere. Someone's in prison because of the gospel, but these are the labels given to them. Do you understand the shame involved? Paul is saying, people view me as a criminal. I don't get to wear a proud label, I'm a Christian unashamed. I get to wear the label criminal. Some of us may get to wear the label Bigots, hateful people, old-fashioned, just flat-out dumb. 
these will be labels that will be given to us, are given to us. He is bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Look at your text. I, I don't know if you see have exclamation marks in your translation. The ESV does. Done for a point. It's not bound. It has a freedom and a power of its own. Though someone is chained, someone dies. <laughs> you know, it's, I, I remember at the church where I was at before, there was a cemetery back behind, and every once in a while I would take breaks from the office and just roam the cemetery. I have uh, relatives buried there. And so I'd see... And it always occurred to me how people want to have an impact. They want to have their name remembered. You go to uh, uh, the Oakwood Cemetery here, and you see magnificent structures and uh, monuments and uh, memorials of different types. And you think, oh my goodness, this is a big name, or they had a lot of money. Uh, and, and these are the things. And, and all of it to say, I want some impact. Will anyone remember me when my heart stops beating? And I read this, and it lets me know that the Word of God does not return void. When I am committed to the Word of God, I proclaim the Word of God. It has a power, a life of its own, that I can set it free. And as if as a bird goes, though I die, the bird still flies on. The message still is going forth. I can be hindered. I can be in the hospital room and I can't go out anymore, but the word of God is not bound. I am just a human, but God's power is in his word still. And we, so the second anchor in times of suffering is we proclaim an unfettered word of God. Unfettered word of God. Though I may be bound up, I hold on to something that will carry on. I have a lot of hope for our church. I have a lot of hope for the Church of America, but it doesn't look like political clout. It looks like God's Word. The hope that we have, if God's Word is still unfettered, it is still unbound, it has a power to speak to the hearts and souls of people. Though people are put in prison who are committed to the Word of God, God has an ability still there's freedom. There's freedom here. And when we're bound to the Word of God, then it produces an incredible liberty. And so the question I want to know is, are we committed to the Word of God more than life itself? More than life itself. One of the, the speeches that we often look to at this time of year is Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry, many of these men that was talked about here uh, that were from Virginia would have heard Patrick Henry. Patrick Henry was one of the the main men of Virginia uh, and their delegates. And he has a, a speech that was recorded on March 23rd, or 1775, or spoken rather, at a church of all places, St. John's Church near Richmond, where they were having a Virginia delegation. He uh, didn't have notes as he wrote, uh, read this or said this. Let me just share what some have recorded. He says, referring about battles and whether or not America can fight, the, the colonies can fight against the British might. He says, besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There's a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will rise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It is to the vigilant, the active, the brave. Besides, sir... We have no election. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat, but in submission and slavery, our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard in the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable, and let it come. I repeat it, sir. Let it come. It is vain, sir, to extenuate the matter. Genuine gentlemen may cry peace and peace, but there is no peace. The war is actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? 
Is life so dear, our peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, Almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. The point he's holding on to is that there's some things worth more than life itself. There are some things worth more than life itself. And so let me ask you, are you aware of that? Are you committed to that? And what Paul is bringing out is that the word of God is one of them. My life is fettered, it's chained, but the word of God is not chained. It has a power on its own. We keep on reading here. He says, therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. That they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He says, not only is the word of God worth it all, salvation is worth it all. There's such a thing as eternal glory. And I will endure some things. Is that what it says? I will endure some things for the sake of the elect. That's not what the text says. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. He's been shipwrecked numerous times. He's been stoned. He's been beat, whipped, and hit with sticks. And he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect. So, why should we as a church hold true to this thing on what the Bible says about marriage and what the Bible says about sin? What's the price we pay? Well, we'll pay a price. But why should we do it? Well, because it's the clear teaching of God's word. It's the clear teaching of sin, of what sin is. If we don't have a good understanding of what sin is, we have no need for a Savior. If we start equivocating on what sin is, then where do we stop? And where do we say, you know what? You need a Savior. Jesus Christ. Why do we go on? Because it's through the gospel, it's through this word that God, notice what he says, can save people and therefore endure everything for the sake of the leg now let me clarify this and let me just tell it to you this way what's the third anchor well the first anchor is that we worship an executed but risen king we we have a, a word of god we proclaim an unfettered word but the third anchor is that we have an enduring our enduring ministry is the instrument that god uses our enduring ministry is the instrument that god uses to bring his chosen to eternal glory. It's the instrument. All right, now, this has a lot of questions when we read this passage. Who, the sake of the elect, all you need to know is that there are chosen people of God. Elect are chosen people of God. You can't really redefine elect any other way. You can look it up, you can read it, but that's simply what it says. They're God's chosen people and so we start saying things like that and we get a little uneasy well if that's the case what's the point point? and so we've got to be careful how we say this and i want you to notice how paul says it i can't really i cannot improve on how paul says this he says therefore i endure everything for the sake of elect that they also may obtain the salvation he says understand this god has chosen people but he has chosen in his working to use this ministry and therefore, I endure all things. He has chosen to proclaim, to use the instrument of proclamation of God's word to work. There's something about it. The more you teach God's word, the more you proclaim the gospel, the more you discover who the chosen people are. It's just how it is. Because God is chosen to work through the ministry. And so, when we proclaim the gospel, we are using the light switch. God has said, this is a light switch that can turn on the light in people's soul. And so don't abandon the light switch. What if it shocks you? What if it hurts? What if it's too hard to reach and it's pain? You don't care because it's the only way some people can have the light switched on in their heart and life. God's chosen instrument. 
to turn on the light in people's lives. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the light. It is an enduring ministry. So listen, you can put this out and say, when we continue on proclaiming God's word here in Nightdale, God's going to use us. It's his, it's his chosen pathway to bring people to himself. And we'll find out who those chosen are by proclaiming the word. Because it's divinely appointed to be the instrument, we hold fast to it. If we, if we abandon that, there is devastating consequences in our lives. In our lives, if we abandon that. God can bring, other, bring people through other means, through other people who will be faithful to his word. But he will use people using his word. Later on, we'll see that Paul says, pray for people who are turning from Christ so that God may grant them repentance. Interesting. God uses prayer as his divine instrument to turn people to himself. And so, there is this idea of faithfulness, that it matters, because it's the divine instrument. So there's a couple of mistakes we need to avoid. We can say, well, if there are people chosen before the foundational world, then we don't need to risk our lives to save them. Paul says the exact opposite. No, I endure everything that they may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So just because there's God's chosen one does not stop me from preaching even to the point of suffering, it assures me that what we endure is not in vain. When you live your life for the Lord and you find yourself in a hospital bed, proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. Why? Because it's God's chosen method to bring people to yourself, to himself. And there's something about doing so at great cost that makes the proclamation even louder. Isn't that the case? I mean, imagine if, if someone's eating great tasting ice cream, but they just got cut on their hand, and they're still talking about the ice cream. <laughs> That's pretty good ice cream. Makes you forget about the cut. Give me some of that. You see how it amplifies the jo- whatever the joy is. And if, if it's still a joy, even in hardship, it magnifies the joy. So when you're enduring and you're proclaiming the gospel and it's still your hope, it's lifting it up. It's worship to do so. Well, the other mistake people tend to make is that we'll read this passage and say, well, if Paul must, must preach and suffer to to persuade lost people to believe in Jesus and be saved, then there's no eternal election. All there is is people's own choice. But that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying the exact opposite here too. I endure everything for the sake of elect that they may obtain the salvation that, that is in Christ Jesus. Just know that whatever you endure is a light, momentary affliction. Whatever you endure is a light, momentary affliction. Now, does that sound naive? It does sound naive. It could be said, well, you don't know what I'm going through. I mean, that's great if you've just got a, a toothache. But we're talking about altering for the rest of my life, enduring pain, suffering, heartbreak. 2 Corinthians four seventeen. this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an internal Weight of glory beyond all comparison. It's relative. It's relative. And the problem is, is that we don't yet know the eternal glory. We don't have it in comparison for us to understand and feel that it's a light momentary affliction. We take it by faith. That it's a light momentary affliction. By faith in what will be. And it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Eternal glory. In other words, we're not just talking about stepping up someone's social standing. 
by proclaiming the gospel. We're not just talking about lifting up a, a community. We're not just talking about helping Hodge Road Elementary School and that they'll be a better performing school. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that when we are proclaiming the gospel and utilizing the resources given to us, doing so for the gospel's sake, and proclaiming God's word through these actions, we are talking about eternal change. Eternal change. And what do we pay for that? Understand what is at stake in this. And then, let me take you to the fourth anchor. Our enduring ministry is, is the instrument that God uses to bring His chosen to eternal glory. Just keep that in mind so that God can use this. As we keep on reading, He says this is a trustworthy saying, verse 11. And so He gives to us in verse 12 and 13 what seems to be looking simil- somewhat like a maybe a hymn, but it's definitely truth that He is uh, quoting here that was understood and known he's just giving credence to this and said this is something that the early church was aware of and say this is trustworthy i'm going to use it here and he has these parallel phrases first positive and then negative if we've died with him we also will live with him if we endure we also will reign with him negative if we deny him he also will deny us if we're faithless he remains faithful so here's what you get from this our salvation is as sure as God's commitment to his name. Our salvation is as sure as God's commitment to his name. You ever wonder when you go through hard times, bad things, and you think, God, really, is this your love? I mean, I'm doing everything right. I'm proclaiming your word, and I'm the one getting penalized. Paul's saying, I'm the one that's chained up, and meanwhile, these jokers out here are are proclaiming a false gospel, and everybody's patting them on their back. God, really? And he's holding on to something. He says, you know what? This isn't the final judgment of it all. He is faithful to the name of God. He's going to ensure to make sure the name of God is lifted up and exalted for eternity. He is committed to that. He's working throughout history and time for that one purpose. Why why is there an Israel nation? Because of the name of God. Simple. Why are there Jews? Because of the name of God. Why is there still a church? Do you understand the opposition that's been in for the church, the Jews, the state of Israel for all this time? Why do any of these things exist? Because God's commitment to his name. He's faithful to it. One thing you can hold on to more, more than that north is north is that God is going to be glorifying his name. You hold on to that. So what does that mean? Well, if we die with him, we also will live with him. If we are dying for the name of Jesus Christ and we are executed and we are uh, put on the line for that, we, it's okay. We're going to live in eternity. The problem is that we are so presently minded that we don't think about eternity. We don't think about heaven And Paul is saying to Timothy, you've got to have eternity weighing heavy on your mind so that you can die here if we endure. Your translation might say if we suffer. Same idea. If we endure, we will also reign with him. I quoted Jim Elliott last week. Uh, This is one of the passages that really spoke hard to him. And he, he read that. He says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. And he said to himself, he wrote it in his journal, I have done no suffering. Therefore, I will do no reigning with Christ. And that shook him to his soul. Led him to a commitment and resolve that took him in the 1950s to Ecuador. Where eventually he did suffer and was martyred. This verse proved to be prophetic in his own heart and mind, as it compelled him into action. If we endure, we also will reign with him. And then you've got these other two passages. Uh, If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now that's pretty clear, isn't it? In fact, he's referring back to Matthew 10, 33. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is Jesus talking. 
one of the stallmarks that Christ has changed your life is that you will continue to walk with Christ. A hallmark that Christ has not changed your life is that you deny him. An evidence of it. He says, if that's the case, then you will be denied by the Father. I'm not teaching that you have to make sure that you're faithful to make sure you're saved. Because what saves you? It is the grace of God that saves you by faith. But what I am saying is it's going to produce such a rework in your heart that there will be a faithfulness to the end. And then he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Now, sometimes we read that and think, oh, praise God. And we kind of use it as, man, I'm faithless, but God's still faithful. He's going to save me, though I'm faithless. And uh, and we look at it that way, but the problem is it doesn't seem to fit the context of what he's saying. One, it doesn't match the parallel phrasing uh, that he's put here. And then we read this. Another way of saying this is if we are faithless, deny him, he remains faithful. Not to us, but to himself. You get that? He cannot deny himself. He's, it's not so much faithful to you. What's the point of it? The point of it is he's faithful to the name of God. That's what the text is saying, isn't it? He cannot deny himself. He's faithful to his own name. And so where the first two are positive, the last two are more negative. He says there is great assurance, but there is also something for us to be aware of, to be careful of, to, to watch out for. And so we've got to make a choice in our society. As our society is going to say, you're going to pay a price. You want to believe that? You want to believe these things about the gospel? You want to believe this about what sin is and what, and what marriage is? You want to believe that? That's fine, but you'll pay a price. But somewhere along the way, as Christians, we've got to ask ourselves, is that price worth more than Jesus? That's the question every Christian is going to have to face here in a minute. Is the price we pay for what we say about the Word of God, the price we pay, is it worth more than Jesus? And the Scripture is simply saying is, understand, you can't have both. You can't have both. You lift up respectability above Jesus, you'll get respectability on this earth. But God says he's going to deny you. Because we've made a choice that we want respectability over God, over Jesus. You want your reputation? And you say, well, I'm just not going to say anything about this. I'm not going to say anything about things that I know society doesn't agree is sin. I'm, I'm going to preserve my reputation. Well, what about God's reputation? What about his word? What about the gospel? We're making a choice. This is a hard, this is a hard thing. I understand that. But I just want you to understand, it was not any harder for Timothy. Okay? It was not any harder for Paul. It was not any harder for Jesus. Christians of every generation have to ask this question. And we've lived in somewhat of a bubble for a while. But the bubble's breaking. And it's okay. Because when the bubble breaks, it is an opportunity to proclaim Christ like we've never proclaimed him before. It's an opportunity to worship God like we never could have worshipped him before. I mean, how many of you really had to pay a price to worship God today? But as you speak out in your workplaces, in your communities, in your families, that too is worship, you know. That also is worship. And sometimes some of the best worship is going to happen right there because you're going to pay a price. I think about a song you'll recognize. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. 
and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Through death into life everlasting, he passed, and we follow him there. Over us, sin no more has dominion, for more than conquerors we are. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His word shall not fail you, he promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying, his perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Are we prepared? You then, my child, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Things you've heard from Paul, from Jesus, commit them to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You know, there's an urgency when you think you don't have much freedom left. Tell as many people as you can. And share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But remember, the risen son of David, according to the gospel we're chosen. Keep your heart set on he is sufficient. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm going to pray that as you hear this word, the Holy Spirit takes this word and firms it in your heart. Bolstered in obedience and faith. And that as you hear this word, the things that right now are looming over you as large will be diminished as Jesus is lifted in your heart.